0: when i when i hear your question or your comments i go back to the early days of the pandemic when nobody knew what was going on nobody knew how dangerous this disease was and still is frankly and there was a lot of fear and uncertainty in the world and so during that time a lot of the you know a lot of the norms were just kind of broken around this hierarchy and these you know i don't want to sound negative but facades or pretenses that we put up or how we showed up in-person at work you know you have to have this dress and to walk this way and talk this way and i think some of that just went out the window when the service people we were talking about earlier literally risking their lives to make sure we have food and gas or you know basic services and so i do think in many cases there was you know a recognition that okay maybe all these images that we presented are less important than you know the, the human beings on the other side
1: Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest and thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Today I'm talking to Jeff Mike. Rather than introduce Jeff, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Telling us where they're sitting right now, what their current job is, and what their favorite thing is to eat. Over to you, Jeff.
0: Thanks, Jules. Um, I'm Jeff Mike. I'm currently in Ellicott City, Maryland, uh, after having spent some time overseas teaching in Morocco. Uh, We love the East Coast of the United States, where we get actually a full spring. Coming from Texas previously, we got a short spring, maybe a few weeks, and we've enjoyed two months and going on three. Uh, of, of a beautiful spring here in Maryland. So uh, I'm currently a head of research and managing director for FlexTrack. And we are a, an extended workforce solution provider built on Salesforce, uh, primarily coming out of the, the vendor management system space, but we're much, uh, much broader than that. And our overarching vision is to unify the employee workforce with the non-employee workforce for a total workforce strategy. Um, and my favorite thing to eat there's so much to choose from. My wife is from Lebanon and she's an amazing cook. So I had a few things to choose from, but what I chose uh, was a dish called kibe arna bia. Have you heard of that?
1: No, not he- never heard of that. Sounds delicious. Kibe.
0: If you've ever had uh, Middle Eastern food, kibe is very common. It's, it's ground meat, typically beef or beef and lamb, with, uh, with pine nuts and spices and bulgur wheat. Um, and so kibe arenbiya is that type of beef with a citrus uh, tahini sauce. And it takes all day to make if you do it right. And there's probably three, four five different types of citrus with the tahini. Uh, it's very heavy, but it is absolutely delightful.
1: And it sounds amazing. The question is, have you learned how to make it or do you rely on your wife making it?
0: I'm not allowed to touch food in the Lebanese kitchens. So. <laughs>
1: Okay. Okay. Um, So uh, I wanted to understand a bit more about you and what you were like before you became the person you are today. Um, But my first question, I just have to ask it, as a person with a first name as a surname, do people ever call you Mike by accident?
0: Oh boy, I could tell stories for the rest of the hour on that one. There's a funny movie called Roxanne from, from the late 80s, I think, where Steve Martin uh, he goes off for maybe 10 minutes on nose jokes. And I could probably do the same in terms of, uh, does anyone ever call you Mike? Uh, my favorite one, however, is when I've said, yes, my last name is Mike. People say, how do you spell that? Um, one time I was in a particularly bad mood and I said S-M-I-T-H and that didn't go over very well. But <laughs> so I generally answer to both um, unless you know me well and I give everyone three opportunities. You can call me Mike twice after the third one we might have a conversation.
1: The three strike rule. I like it. (laughs) Exactly. So you've talked about your wife being from Lebanon. Who makes up your family?
0: So I have a wife, obviously. I have uh, a daughter who is 12 and a son who is nine and a cat named Mango who's two.
1: Why Mango? Uh,
0: That was what she was called at the shelter when we brought her home.
1: Okay. That sounds like a good family, a good unit, some gender diversity there. A little bit of species diversity as well. That's always good. So on a day-to-day basis, do you have a favorite ritual? Something, no matter how small that you do almost every day, and you you potentially might feel a little uncomfortable if you haven't managed to do it that day?
0: I need quiet time because i am uh, I'm definitely an introvert. So I love being around people and I love Uh, engaging with people and interacting but it does tire me out just by personality so typically in the morning I like uh, some quiet time in in the evenings quiet time uh, sometimes meditation but it's not a very you know it's not an everyday must-have practice so I do like my quiet time and it helps me you know just think more clearly and be more patient with the people around me
1: Patience is a virtue, particularly I find in my own life when I use it all up in my professional life and then at home, I don't have a lot left in the battery. And of course, yes. then, you know, the guilt sets in because you've maybe, you know, used up too much in your professional life and, and not saved enough for your home life.
0: The tough balance, but you're absolutely right, especially when we're, we're, we're working from home. And uh, maybe there's an important meeting we have or we've just gotten off of a sales call or something and a little one walks in. It's hard to sometimes adjust or have to remember to adjust the tone and the speed and the intensity uh, for the family members, but they're usually pretty forgiving too.
1: Well, we certainly know a lot more about that after two plus years of the pandemic, right? I think before that, maybe there was more of a separation between home and work and family and professional um, professional life. But I think the last two years have, have sort of taught us that you can blend them. But as you say, it is it is difficult. You have to switch. You do the mental switch in your mind maybe three or four times a day, right? Just right. to make sure you've got the right hat on, the right persona on for the situation that you're in. That's
0: correct.
1: So, that quiet time um does that go back to what you were like as a child or is it something do you think that's developed as you've gotten older were you a, were you a child that liked to kind of go off on their own and have some quiet time read a book or you know daydream or were you dramatically different when you were a child
0: no I think I think this is an innate trait of mine where I've you know as long as I can remember of course like interacting with people but I've liked my quiet time I've <laughs> particularly like to let my imagination wander in different directions uh, when I'm alone. Typically that's outside. Uh, And so, yes, I feel like this has been a consistent way of doing things as long as I can remember.
1: And when you were a, a child, what did you want to be? Did you want to be a firefighter, an astronaut? Did you want to be a researcher?
0: Uh, You know, it's interesting. I didn't want to be a researcher until I was maybe in high school when I started to understand what research was like. And, you know, I have this affinity for uh, discovering and or creating knowledge and sharing it. So I've, I've at times wanted to be a teacher, a professor when I was a child, which I've had an opportunity to do. And if I go back to some of my earliest memories, I always wanted to fly. And so something that allowed me to fly either in an airplane or ideally without an airplane, which isn't quite possible yet. Those are those are my aspirations, but typically involved in in developing and sharing knowledge.
1: Oh, well, that's really interesting. That's been a common theme then from when you were very young. Right. Yes. And I know that you have done some teaching in Morocco. So if I was to say to you, what's your favorite country that you've ever visited, would it be Morocco?
0: Well, I'd get in trouble if it weren't Lebanon, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... I <laughs> I've, interested, I've visited some pretty interesting places. I have I have a background in international development, and so I've been to places like sub-Saharan Africa, to Zambia, Pakistan uh, was very interesting. Haiti was you know, fascinating, inspiring, depressing all at the same time. Uh, so you know, I don't I wouldn't say I have a favorite country. Of course, I enjoy being an American as well. Uh, but I, I really what I enjoy is immersing myself in other cultures and experiencing them firsthand.
1: Well, I'm I'm fascinated to know that you went to Zambia um, because something that not many people know about me is that um, the early part of my life, my parents lived in various countries in Africa. They were teachers. Um, and so uh, from when I was six months old until I was two, we lived. Uh, in, in, Af- in in Africa in Zambia um, oh. and we lived in the middle of the countryside um, uh, in a sort of compound around a little regional school and all the teachers had to live on site because it was so far away from any of the the cities um, or any of the infrastructure um, and the kids came you know from all around they would walk uh, long journeys to get to the school because education was obviously very very valued there Um, So I started my life really in Zambia.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Do you go back ever?
1: Um, I haven't ever been back to Zambia. Um, From Zambia, we went to Malawi and we were there um, for four years and then we went to South Africa and I have been back a few times um, to South Africa. Uh, including as an as an adult um, a few times, but never quite made it back to Zambia. I'm not sure I could find the small rural school kind of in the middle of nowhere, um, but we've got loads of amazing photos from that time uh, and, you know, we all think of it very fondly. So when were you in Zambia?
0: I was in Zambia. I was working for uh, a government contractor that you know, interesting enough, did education programs, basic education programs, both urban and rural. And so they needed some HR help uh, with the program in Zambia. So I went out, it was 2006 Mm -hmm. uh, that time. And I will tell you, it was was the first time I had been to sub-Saharan Africa. And it was wasn't a very long time, but it just reshaped my whole perspective on the world, having been there for a while. It was very interesting.
1: I'm sure we could talk about that for a long time as well. If I take you forward from your childhood a little bit, then what was your first paying job?
0: Oh, I was a dishwasher at a, at a deli uh, in Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: I, think I, that, was
0: 15, I think I was 15.
1: Has that shaped your life? Do you do the dishes at home?
0: Uh, we, we share the dishes at home. Um, my wife is very specific about the way they do them, what the way to do them, and she's she's trained me. You know, I think what, what it's done though is I did while I was in high school and in college in particular, I spent a lot of time uh, in food service, both dishwashing and you know front of the house, waiting tables or or serving. Um, and it really you know kind of gave me a perspective and appreciation for people who make their living uh, doing that work. And so. Um, you know, without virtue signaling, I did get a sense of kind of empathizing with people who that's where, where they work. So I try to remember those times when I'm you know, interacting with a, a service employee somewhere.
1: And when you left um, university, what was the first job that you went into after university?
0: Well, I, I opened a martial arts school in Seattle during my senior year in college at the University of Washington. And so I had, um, I would say it was, you know, running the martial arts school full time.
1: Wow. All of these different hidden career jumps that you've done, Jeff, I would never have pitched you for being a martial arts expert. Are you still, are you still able to, you know, do the moves?
0: Uh, Yes. I often refer to that time as 20 years and 20 pounds ago, Uh, (laughs) but I do. (laughs) But I do, um, I do practice primarily the, the breathing movements, uh, you know, Qigong in particular. I also do a lot of the movements that uh, are, are helpful in, in opening your joints and developing flexibility without a lot of impact, Tai Chi type movements um, in particular.
1: Yeah, I think uh, um, as all of us get older, the importance of that kind of exercise really starts to come front of mind as you cr- you start to creak and maybe less resilient to get through the day um, or the adventures without a little bit of self-care, self-love, a bit of discipline. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm perhaps not as good as, as you at doing it, but I, I, I certainly would, would aspire to doing that very regularly particularly if we want to carry on working and carry on being healthy, the the longer we go. So your early roles, quite different, you know, service industry, you know, front of house and then kind of running a business. What do you think are the key lessons that you've learned from those early roles before your kind of research and HR career really sort of took off and solidified?
0: As I mentioned, you know, the first roles were you know, an appreciation for service workers and, you know, doing my best to, to treat them with respect and dignity and having an affinity for, for what they do. And I, I think that has lasted uh, throughout my life in terms of teaching martial arts and running the school, you know, there was a lot there. One of them in particular, I think, has shaped my leadership approach, which is rather than trying to make people do things, I try to create space for them to pursue the things that are interesting or that motivate them, maybe provide some tools or some knowledge and from time to time some encouragement or a nudge or two. But really what I found is, is you know tapping into internal motivations from people I work with and then creating space, helping to create space for them to succeed was really something that I learned uh, while teaching the martial arts in particular. So that was uh, useful. And then running a business, you know, if if people didn't come in and sign up, I didn't pay the bills. And so I learned how to prospect and how to sell and how to, you know, really believe in what I was selling in order to get people to see the value and ultimately, you know, pay for the services that I was offering.
1: And those two things are quite complementary, aren't they? Because, you know, if you're trying to, if you're working in HR or you're leading by influence or by hierarchy, you know, you also have to believe in what you're saying, you have to believe in your people, because sometimes you're selling to them what you see, but maybe they don't see about themselves or about the situation. So I can see how those two things um, have combined and and are really complementary in terms of where you've gone in, in your career. Have you found that?
0: Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right, you know, and and particularly coming from an HR background, selling sometimes is a, is a, is a word that, you know, is distasteful to some people or even nonprofit experience that I've had. And and my perspective on that is, you know, I'm not psychologically manipulating anybody into anything. It's understanding what their interests are. And if what their interests, if their interests align with what I have to offer, then we have a discussion about the value of that offering and whether it's, For them or not but it's really based in you know what is their motivation what are they trying to accomplish and can i help them do that with whatever it is i'm i'm selling
1: so in terms of your current job how would you describe your current job what's a day in the life look like for jeff
0: yeah so that's a great question and and i'm fortunate enough to have an employer who is very flexible and, and hired me because you know they don't have what i can do and in particular, you know, part of my job is um, bringing, bringing all of this energy and creativity and investment that we've seen over the past you know, half decade to decade with the workforce, particularly the full-time employee workforce or on payroll uh, and bring that to the contingent or the extended workforce, which is approaching 50% of the average company's workforce in some areas. So we talk about creating a human-centered organization Certainly, that applies to you know, regular employees or full-time employees. But how can we extend that to non-employees like consultants or uh, independent contractors or temps or gig workers? And and you know, there's different different ways to approach those segments of the workforce. But at the core, they're human as well. So my opportunity is to try to translate and apply, or even develop some new approaches for humanizing that side of the workforce, and ultimately ultimately developing, you know, a total workforce strategy. So that's generally my guiding principle and my my mandate and then kind of details in there. I'm doing a lot of research. I'm having a lot of conversations. I started my career just by perspective when I sold the martial arts school. I went into staffing because I went to a temp agency and said, hey, I need a job. They said, why don't you come work for us? And that's how I got into, uh, got into HR. So After, you know, 20 years of that, um, I'm I'm still learning about the contingent workforce, obviously, you know, technology and digital transformation has has changed a lot. So a big part of what I do is learn about what's happening, about what technology can enable, then I try to synthesize that and share it out in a way for people who, you know, want to humanize their workplace or want to have a more, have a better experience with their workforce, no matter what segment of the workforce that is. So a lot of conversations, a lot of, a lot of learning, certainly do some writing and, and, and recording and editing of interviews.
1: Do you find since the pandemic that you have, you face less resist, resistance in terms of some of that thinking, or do you think it was already well on the way ahead of, ahead of the COVID pandemic?
0: That's a great question. I think COVID has softened the resistance to some of these ideas that, that we've had and had been trying at least in HR and in staffing for a, a long time to be able to, to address. You know? And it's, it's one thing when you know, an HR person says, oh, we need to humanize the workforce, or here, you know, let's talk about being human centric. It's another thing when the top five you know, platform businesses in, in, in the world are saying, oh, we're gonna humanize our offerings. Um, and because of the, the, the challenges and, and trauma or disruption, if you will, of, of the pandemic you know the way i like to describe it is someone took the ant farm and shook it up um, and so there's an opportunity to kind of reset how things are done right now and so i i think i think the pandemic has 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 created opportunities to do things differently than we have in the past
1: yeah i'm interested in um, i'm interested in this personally because you know i have always had what i think the you know the the common term would be side hustles um, primarily driven by you know curiosity or endless enthusiasm that might not be s- treated with eagerness in the job that I'm doing, but I need to have an outlet for it. And I've always very much enjoyed working from home or working remotely and having that flexibility for life. But I'm interested in your perspective around the the focus, particularly in the media and the public eye around the strategy that companies are taking about location of work. So I think all too often the idea of flexibility and human-centred workplaces focuses on do you make your employees come into the office for set hours or do you allow them to work from home and work flexibly? But in my experience, actually human-centered workplaces are much more than where you work. You can work from home every day, but actually if leadership isn't uh, supportive of what you're doing, if your diversity and uniqueness isn't valued, you know, if you feel bullied or the work isn't meaningful, all of those will have a far greater impact actually uh, than where you sit when you're on a computer or taking endless Zoom calls. So I'm interested in your perspective around that.
0: I think you're absolutely right there in terms of um, it being more than where you work. I had, you know, the good fortune to work for an organization that allowed us to work remotely prior to the pandemic. In fact, part of their strategy to save money on office space was to have a number of us work remotely, and then we would we would hotel in or we would travel a lot to to client sites, uh, which had its own implications. But generally speaking, uh, for a long time, six years at least, I've been I've been trying to figure out how to how to, you know, look at a screen all day, frankly, and, and not uh, become fatigued. Um, as well as, you know, as we're engaging people, how how do I engage people when we're not in the same room? And so there's tools and techniques to be able uh, to do that. And something you touched on, I think, is really important: is this sense of belonging. And belonging is not where you sit, for sure. You know, it's how you're treated, how people interact with you. I think being in person. Uh, helps, and there are research studies that indicate, you know, some of the highest-performing teams, at least pre-pandemic, are hybrid teams where, you know, people work remotely, but they come together regularly in person. Um, and even in my, my new role, I have a great, great group of colleagues, and we, we've enjoyed getting to know each other. We spend a weekend at a, a, week at a conference together, and our relationships were transformed. So there's something valuable about being in person, for sure. Um, there's something valuable about being at home and particularly not having to commute. And I think going back to this notion of digital transformation, it's really, it's, it's aligning individual preferences with, uh, with the needs of the organization and being flexible. It's not something that's easy to do or you can kind of set it and forget it. It's something that you have to continuously try to engage, which is hard, but at the same time, it's better for the relationships.
1: In the, in the States, have you found, as I have, that enforced working from home has kind of cut through a little bit of the hierarchy and, and also potentially allowed people to be a bit more comfortable in showing their personality? So if I give you a, an example, when you're presenting to a group of executive leaders, the chief executive or, or a board, and every single one of that those board members are sitting in a homemade office with a cat walking across the screen or you know, a child walking through the background, they know that you know that they're a human. And so there's, a, there's some leveling, I think, that has exp- been experienced certainly by, I would say personally by myself and I would say for many of my colleagues um, in New Zealand um, where I'm currently living that it has brought a bit more of the human out across some of the the sort of hierarchy within traditional organisations. And the other aspect of that is the ability for people to belong to an organisation without hiding who they are has also, I think, become much more accepted, a safer proposition for people. So, you know, who you have at home, who your partner is, Um, quite often during the pandemic, there would be some instance where everybody on your screen would see um, who you were living with, who your partner was, um, what kind of family makeup you had. Whereas if you were always going into the office, if you were worried about sharing the fact that maybe you were in a non-traditional family setup, you could keep that very quiet um, it would be a part of yourself that was that was hidden, and there might be really good reasons for that. But I would say my observation is that through having to work from home and everybody be in that position, there has been uh, opportunities for people to sort of test out, to pilot them showing parts of their personality, to their colleagues on a screen that is not quite as confronting as you know going into the office, uh, maybe dressed in different clothes for your gender. You know, all of those different things that that people you know, should feel comfortable and supported to show. I think we've had an exponential step forward, Um, not always in a positive way, obviously, but I would say there are some, you know, some deeper seated changes that have come through from enforced, common, enforced hybrid or home working. And I'm interested in whether that's come out in the States as well.
0: I think it has. And I think you've addressed a number of, you know, social and cultural issues Maybe norms that were broken by the t- pandemic, as, as we've discussed. And, and when I when I hear your question or your comments, I go back to the early days of the pandemic when nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew how, how dangerous this disease was and still is, frankly. Um, and there was a lot of fear and uncertainty in the world. And so during that time, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the norms were just kind of broken around this hierarchy and these, these um. know I don't want to sound negative but maybe some of the facades or pretenses that we put up or how we showed up in person at work you know you have to have this dress and to walk this way and talk this way and I think some of that just went out the window when you know the service people we were talking about earlier literally risking their lives to make sure we have food and gas or you know you know basic services and so I do think in many cases there was you know a recognition that okay Maybe all these 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 images that we presented are are less important than you know the the human beings on the other side, and so I remember a lot of those early conversations, just checking in, how are you? Who's, where's your family? Who's your who's your cat? You know, who's your who's your your domestic partner? Uh, what's your family like? And and really, what I think was a more sincere interest in identity than kind of the, again I use this word virtue signaling that may have been been in person previously or the downright resistance to those ideas uh, previously. So now there's people certainly in the US who have very different perspectives than I do on this. But I think in terms of working, I've been very fortunate to, to, to be with a number of organizations that are you know, aspiring to be human and, and are human at their core and really allowed for that you know, investigation or that understanding of the humanness, regardless of you know, the, the norms around them at the time.
1: That's really interesting. I I think, again, that's something that I think that we could talk for a couple of hours on just on that topic. Maybe we'll do another series for that. Um, So just in terms of your working style, and I'm always interested in this because it fascinates me how different people uh, approach this. Do you respond to emails and messages as they come through? Are you an instant replier? or are you one of these people that has a schedule and they only check their emails or their messages at certain times in the day because they really want to focus on, you know, some work or some think pieces in, in between what kind of, what kind of worker are you?
0: I really wish I was one of those people you're describing because they'd probably get a lot more done and, and maybe have less stress, but I, you know, especially there's lots of, lots of, uh, you know, lots of advice out there about blocking your time and the best way to be most efficient and productive with your with your emails. But I'll go back to the conversation earlier when you know I love to let my mind wander, and and as a researcher and as a creative person who's trying to operate within a business environment, I go through you know stretches where I will you know cover all my emails, and then there'll be two or three days when I'm doing something else, and my mind will be working on either a you know a, a perplexing research question or. Or something, you know, something else. So generally speaking, I try to be respectful to the people who are are interacting with me. And I do recognize that things happen at a certain speed. If I'm trying, you know, if I'm prospecting and trying to set up a conversation with somebody, certainly waiting a week to get back to their scheduling email is not a good idea. Um, but I've also realized that, you know, and, and some of this is on the other side, everyone's very busy. And so so a day or two. Uh, delay in getting back if it's not a critical issue or, you know, if it's not going to lose momentum is, is something that's uh, helpful. I Email, I feel like, is one of the biggest wastes of time and one of the most inefficient ways to communicate ever. Um, and one thing I noticed over the past few years, particularly as text started to proliferate or instant messages, emails, particularly one employer, I remember I had someone senior say, your emails are way too long and nobody reads them. And so I just, it's almost like emails are, uh, you know, a different form of text. And if you really want to have a rich communication, you, you schedule a call. So a little bit of a meandering response, but I'm not one of those people who's uh, disciplined. I do my best to try to you know, respect other people's time and the momentum of a particular context. But I'd much rather be ha- either having a conversation, talking about ideas with a group of people, or trying to organize them by either writing a script or, or, or writing a blog or something like that.
1: I have to say, I wish I was one of those people too, um, but I'm not, but I, I listened to a podcast and one of my favorite podcasts um, that's called Cautionary Tales. And one of the themes of one of those podcast episodes was this concept of slow motion multitasking. Um, and the concept really is that in, in history, uh, people who have invented something amazing, Uh, haven't actually focused all of their time on that one thing until they had the light bulb moment. Actually what they've done is they've interjected completely different topics and they've let their mind focus on one to the other to the other often for quite long periods of time and then they've come back to their original um, piece of work and the the concept really is that that allows your brain to do exactly what you said, to sort of daydream, to make connections, to come up with innovative ideas that it might not do if you were 100% focused and very narrow in your field of vision. And the podcast refers to a number of, of historical geniuses, and I'm not saying I'm anywhere near that, but I find that that's given me the license to say the reason why I'm not one of those people is that I don't want to limit the opportunity for that spark across different topics or different conversations, different channels. They're all the things that can drive innovation, ideas, you know, cut through on a really complex problem. So I feel I now have an excuse not to be one of those people um, because I'm, you know, I'm I'm walking in the footsteps of, of geniuses that have gone before. And you can feel free to use that if you want to justify it for yourself as well.
0: Oh, I'm going to, and those those poor project managers who are very patient with me and, and follow up on and deadlines, I, I will use this to try to explain myself. As when I when I miss a deadline or require a second follow up, and it's not you know it's not something that I do all the time. But I know some people are very linear and scheduled, and you know more power to them. That's just not me. So yes, I will use. I will use this uh, this argument in the future.
1: So talking about your work colleagues, um, what would you say, what do you think your work colleagues would say are the, the best and most annoying things about you as a colleague?
0: Oh, sometimes I think out loud like we've been describing and it's hard to follow. And so, you know, if we're ideating sometimes and I haven't I haven't thought through and organized my thoughts, I know my boss sometimes has said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so, and he's patient and obviously he's, he's created a lot of space for me to be who I am, which I, I really appreciate. Uh, but sometimes I think this kind of stream of consciousness thinking, um, is tough when, when there's someone on the other end or a few people on the other end and it's, you know, he's president of a company. He's, you know, he's driving towards results. He's got a lot of things to do and make sure everyone's you know, taken care of and moving. And here I am thinking out loud sometimes, and I think. Well, I have space for that, I think it, it does require some patience on the side of my colleagues.
1: And I would imagine that that's probably one of the best and worst of your traits, right? So that's actually why they need you there for the ideation, for the, the imagination that you bring. They just have to stick with it and give you the freedom to do it. And I find quite often um, with people, the things that are really annoying are actually the things that you really need that person to, to do. And you just have to allow them to be whoever they are, not fit in with your own timetable. Quite often it's a timing issue or your way of doing things, because if you um, force them to go into a certain mold, actually you probably lose the thing that you really need from that person, which is part of their kind of personality and, and how their brain works and how their mouth works quite often in terms of connecting their brain to the outside world.
0: I think that's exactly right and and you've got a little bit of you know martial arts philosophy inside you if you ever decide to pursue that practice where really. Your traits can be strengths and weaknesses, depending on how they're applied, and so I think you're absolutely right, the team appreciates and has recognized you know my ability to create and and what I bring to the table and again they're patient with me kind of bringing me to a focus when, when the time comes.
1: Um, and do you believe in planning your career moves? I know that the move to FlexTrack is relatively new. Um, was it planned? Is that how you've moved through your career or have opportunities sort of dropped into your lap and you thought, why not?
0: Well, why'd you ask this question? Um, so I used to think that I would plan my career and do what I want. And so, you know, certainly, you know, being a professor is something, you know, doing research and teaching at the, the university level to be more specific is something that I've wanted to do since at least 17 or 18 years old and there are times when I pointed myself in that direction and, and not but generally speaking I found what works better is when I, I'm very clear on the type of work that I want to do and how I want to do it meaning you know I a long time ago calculated how much time people spend at work as adults and I thought okay being an HR or understanding people at work is something very valuable. I can apply this research and this knowledge, and the leading HR teams was 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 part of that. Where where I found it doesn't work for me anyway, and maybe this is related to my kind of you know meandering mind. Sometimes is when I say I'm going to do this and work for this organization, and this and work for this organization. So with with having clarity about. Big picture, the type of work that I wanted to do and the type of people that I wanted to work with. I've been very opportunistic in terms of the specific organizations and specific roles that I've accepted. Um, current role, I hadn't thought about it when the recruiter wrote me. I thought, "What VMS? You know, I was I dealt with that a long time ago." And you know, I don't think so, but let's take the call and see what happens. And you know, they articulated a vision and values and. You know, looking to disrupt where I wouldn't have thought this for myself, but someone reached out to me and said hey you should look at this opportunity. And I learned a great deal and thought hey here's an opportunity that I had thought of before so big picture what i'm doing type of work yes specific organizations or timelines for steps i've not been i've not been that planful.
1: And if someone asked you to mentor them, what do you think you would draw on to provide that kind of support and advice?
0: Going back to to what we talked about earlier in terms of the martial arts school, it would really be, let's, let's find out what your interests are and your needs and your values. And, you know, specifically, you know, depending on those answers, how can we get you to where you want to be or where you need to be? in terms of developing skills, developing perspectives and taking a particular path. And so again, my my when I've mentored or led somebody or a team, it's really been about getting to know them and what they want to accomplish within the, you know, the constraints of, of the work environment and trying to find ways to help them along to something they already have articulated that they want. And from time to time, if there's something that, you know, let's say analogies in martial arts, I'd be teaching a 60 year old. Well, you're not gonna be doing the flying sp- splits probably anytime soon. I'm not gonna help you develop flexibility in your hips and some stamina, but is that really what you wanna do? Or do you wanna have that flexibility uh, and, and, and you know, in, your, in your hips and the stamina that it takes to do that? So sometimes reframing that question without pulling away those interests uh, is helpful.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that analogy very much. And I'm feeling like I need to take some martial art classes after this, I have to say. (laughs) So at this point in your life, you know, how would you describe where you're at?
0: Uh, In terms of professionally?
1: Anything.
0: Um, Anything. Yeah. So I would say I'm very fortunate to have an amazing family who's been through a lot with me over the past few years. And, you know, thank God we're still together. And, and, um, working through things. So I, you know, when, when that question comes up, that's the first thing I want to try to express gratitude for my family and for the many, many people I've interacted with both personally and professionally who have, you know, treated me with respect and a genuine interest and done some of these things that I've mentioned. So again, that's kind of the big picture. So I, I, I take some, some gratitude there. I have to admit just given the, the way the state of higher education a little bit disappointed that that full-time long-term professor role hasn't, hasn't materialized, but that being said, I've had the opportunity to do the teaching, to do the research and interact with a lot of very, you know, very interesting and intelligent and motivated people throughout. So in terms of kind of where things are, I'm feeling very fortunate to have, you know, again, a good family, good people around me, the team I'm a part of right now, is motivated and, and seems to be a fit for me in terms of letting my mind wander and, and staying focused on you know, a big goal of, of really humanizing the non-employee workforce. So I'm feeling very fortunate there. I feel like I have an opportunity to draw upon all of these experiences, both education, practical experiences, and life lessons to to really bring myself to that role professionally and, and to bring of that expertise to back to the personal relationships that i have so i'm i'm feeling fortunate i'm you know cultivating gratitude around these things but not uh i'm not at at the finish line yet
1: that sounds like a really great place to be actually and i and i think just to echo the the gratitude point you know time has flown by And that's the end of this conversation. I can't believe it's gone so quickly. I feel like we've got about five or six topics that we need to schedule in for further conversations. But I do want to say, you know, I really appreciate the generosity in sort of sharing your life and and the stories that you've told us. You know, it has actually been really insightful. I think I will go back over all the stories you've told and your reflections and 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 sort of see the greater wisdom than even that i've been able to listen to just through this so i do want to say thank you very much for joining us and hopefully we will talk again
0: oh my pleasure jules and thanks for the great questions and uh, and, and you know the genuine interest that i'm feeling for this conversation i appreciate it
1: thanks very much thank you so much for listening and thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.